morning. It's nine o'clock. We're going to get going. Use every moment we can as they close the doors and, uh uh-oh, my wife's not even here yet. I'll make an exception to the rule. I'll wait for her to come in here. I know where my bread is buttered. And her timing is perfect, so I think she's right on time. Right on time. Well, she chose me as a husband, you know, Brock, as you laugh. I think she's pretty, she makes pretty good choices. Ah, all right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, praise you. As the elders and I just came to you and spoke to you, we are in awe and wonder of your creation. As we just get a glimpse of what you've made in our modern age, being able to look into outer space even, in this modern age that we have, yet we, we still don't quite grasp your power, your might, your majesty, yet someday we will, someday we will see it. I pray that we are reminded through your word today, as we should be every week we look at your word, that this is all about your glory, this is all about your goodness, your righteousness, and your will being accomplished And as we consider this, and we consider this horrific time, described by your son as the worst time in human history, that it is unfolds before our eyes from your word, that we are reminded that you're good, that you're merciful, that you're full of grace, that you love us, and that you've given us a way. As we consider your wrath and your judgment, we also should consider that we deserve that, and yet, yet you saved us. So for the believers in here, I I pray that as we study this, it just continues to remind us of why we should thank you daily for what you have done. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We left off last week in the middle, kind of, of of a scenario laid out for us by Daniel, if you recall. And I'd like you to turn back to Daniel chapter 9 so we can finish that thought. And as you do that, just as you kind of turn to Daniel chapter 9 and I'll bring this up. We're going to pick this up in Daniel 9, approximately chapter verse 26. As you do that, I will remind us as this hopefully will start to move. We'll see if it does. There we go. That we're dealing with a timeline given to us by Daniel. You'll notice Daniel 9. It just says 27 here, but we're looking at this entire run through Daniel. And it's indicating, as I mentioned, this particular chart, and the other one does too, you just can't see it because it's so small, is indicating that there's a week that Daniel is giving us that we argued and made the point that this is a week of years, not a week of days. And we were in the middle of this discussion, so Daniel chapter 9, you're there again, and we, um, we need to kind of close the gap here. We need to close this argument, close this um, this structure out so that we can understand more of what this seven-year tribulation is as we, as we go into the seals today and what this first seal is. So as you're here, this is the, the, um, the quote that we had that kind of summed up this for us as we transition. Here's what MacArthur says about this. Good summary of last week. So I think it's a good place to start. These are weeks of years, whereas weeks of days are described in a different way. I had this on the screen last week to end the the lesson. The time spans from the Persian Art Artaxerxes decree to rebuild Jerusalem around 445 BC 
to Messiah's kingdom. This panorama includes number one, seven weeks or 49 years, possibly closing Nehemiah's career and the rebuilding of the streets and walls, as well as the end of the ministry of Malachi and the close of the Old Testament. Number two, 62 weeks of 434 more years for a total of 483 years. I broke this all down for us last week. Uh, You can go back and watch that one or look at those slides if you'd like to get more clarification on that. I'm not going to reteach it. To the first advent of the Messiah. This was fulfilled in the triumphal entry, 9, 10, Nisan. Um, And then that is exactly 173,880 days or 7 times 69 prophetic years of 360 days. The Messiah will be cut off, a common reference to death, the crucifixion, and then number three, the final seven years, which is what we're going to deal with today, or the 70th week of the time of the Antichrist, the Roman people from whom the Antichrist will come, I'll discuss that here in a moment, based on the text, will destroy the city of Jerusalem and its temple in AD 70. So that's kind of where we left off. Let's get back into the text real quick. We'll pick this up at verse 26, and I'll bring it up on the screen. 26a, let's just deal with that first. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Okay, so this, this is specifically talking about the crucifixion of Christ. This is his death. And then later, of course, we'll see the resurrection. Um, three days later, three Jewish days later, we won't get into that. And this stops the clock. Uh, Ruth came up to me, Karen came up to me last week. I said I was going to mention you two. Say, so you got to explain that this is about the nation of Israel, and I, I will. I'm going to get to that here in a moment, and that there is a pause in this 70-week period of time, and this stops the clock. It stops the clock because Jesus fulfilled a very big portion of this prophecy. If you look back in your text here, and that's why I have you in Daniel 9.27, remember those really important things at the beginning of this text, so 9, 24, 25, notice what Christ will accomplish. This is so important. And I've mentioned this last week, but we've got to come back to it. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people, the Jewish people, your holy city, Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, and to bring an everlasting righteousness to seal both vision and profit. This is really important. If Jesus didn't come to deal with the sin problem, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about revelation. It wouldn't matter. Because you would still be in your sin and so would I. Right? Atoning for sin and having his righteousness imparted on us is the most important thing we're going to find in this book with regards to you. Because otherwise you are in desperate, desperate doom. You're in trouble. And so am I. So this is really important, and it stops the clock. It stops this moment in time. We'll get to Israel here in just a moment. What what I'd like you to do is just go away from Daniel for a second, and this brings up a a question that Dave had, and it was a good question. What about this pause? And I hadn't mentioned it yet. I think I may have referenced it, but this pause that I'm talking about, does Daniel specifically say that? Well, what it says is it brings up weak again here in just a verse or two, which we'll get to in just a second, where weak is mentioned again, a final week. So there is a pause inferred. Now, we have Christ doing this too, and I want to show you an example of that. Turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. As a matter of fact, he's doing that in, to me, in my mind, in reference to this timeline, to be truthful. So go to Luke chapter 4, 
And I've referenced this before for other reasons because of prophecy fulfillment. So, but I think it's a it's, it's, it's really good example for us today. So Luke 4, 14. And I'm going to tell you right off the bat, we're going to kind of take this slow and easy. And I think it's good to take this slow and easy because there were a lot of questions last week, which tells me, okay, I need to slow down and just break this down a little bit before we jump into into these seals, because this is the structure where we get uh, our understanding of a seven-year tribulation and what comes in the subsequent judgments and the chronological order of it. All right, so Luke 4.14, here's what we see. We know this account. Jesus is coming into, into Nazareth, and this incredible moment takes place where he is essentially establishing himself as the Messiah, the one that was predicted that the Jews had been hoping for. And he makes this, there's no mics in this day, but it's a mic dropping moment that we're going to read about. But I want you to note something that we see. All right, so that's kind of the context here, picking it up around verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all teaching and giving a great understanding of the word that, remember, is his word. He's the living word. The word's there. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, his home, home area, hometown. And, he was, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Now, before we go any further, just so you understand the, the, how this worked, he didn't handpick the, the chapter in Isaiah, which is Isaiah 61, for this day. It was next. Just like we do here. Just like we do here. Pastor doesn't choose, oh, today I'm going to do John 15. No, he's doing it because it's next. It's what we do. Okay, And that's what they did here too. It's God's perfect timing that this is the moment. Does Jesus know that this was the text? Yeah, he knows because he's God. He knows, but he timed it perfectly. He didn't just handpick this one. It was the next one. And this is what happened. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He knew which one was coming, because he's God. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He stopped. Now I'm going to show you why that's important here in just a moment. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of the whole synagogue were fixed on him, because he's about to teach. They sat when they taught, stood up to read the scriptures. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, right here, right now. That's a mic drop moment. Because everybody there, these Jewish people who knew the word that came to synagogue to hear him, and they knew he was this young boy that was raised by Mary and Joseph, this guy's claiming to be Christ. He's claiming to be the Messiah. Big deal. That's not the focus for today, though. I want you to turn to Isaiah 61. As you do, I'm going to remind you where he stopped. He said this. He's quoting Isaiah 61. You're turning to Isaiah 61. I'm still reading here from Luke 4. It said, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and he stopped. Okay. Now, as we go back to Isaiah 61, let's look at see what this actually says. So I go to Isaiah 61, you go to Isaiah 61, I hear the pages turning. For those of you who are righteous and have a real Bible and not a phone, no, I'm kidding, I joke. I, you, 
None of us are righteous, not even one. All right, Isaiah 61, but I do prefer the real Bibles. Yeah, I can't help it. Okay, Isaiah 61. I got in a lot of trouble saying that back in my teaching days, you know, because everybody's into advanced technology, and I, I just, I kind of enjoy just getting under people's skin. Sometimes it's, it's one of those things. But no, it's okay if you use a phone, I guess. Just don't play Tetris while I'm teaching. All right, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive. Sounds familiar, right? It's exactly what Jesus is quoting. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, verse 2. And that's where he stopped, remember? And that's where he said, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing, right here. I'm the man. But what did he stop for? And that the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. That is not about to happen. And Jesus is letting them know, I'm fulfilling up to this point, and then there's a pause. There's vengeance coming, but it isn't coming today. I'm going to deal with the first part of Daniel. I'm going to deal with the atonement of sin. I'm going to deal with the sin problem first. Then vengeance is coming. Jesus himself shows us that sometimes prophecies pause. That's what he's doing here. And in this case, it's pausing. And the reference to mourning here, I think, is a reference to the Jewish people who will mourn when they see the one in whom they've pierced when he comes back. That's what we've studied in Zechariah 12 through 14, if you recall. And that, that's exactly what's going on here. Jesus is pausing, and there's a pause in Daniel 9. Okay? Does that make sense? I hope it does kind of make sense that that's what we see here. Prophecies are oftentimes given to us by the prophets, and they don't even understand exactly what they're writing. They can't see the timeline themselves necessarily. But we see it unfold over time as we look back, and there are times where there's some of it fulfilled, and yet we're waiting for more. And that's the situation here. We see a very similar thing happen. Okay, so back to Daniel 9. You can go back there if you want, but let's see, look at the second part of verse 26. Got it up on the screen for you. And remember, I'm using the NASB here because most of you have that, but also it uses the term Messiah, so that helps us. In the, it says then, and it differentiates this prince because it can be confusing otherwise. The people of the prince who is to come, this is referencing the Antichrist, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. There's going to be a group of people, a country that will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined, and some of that is yet future. But this happened in 70 AD. The Roman government destroyed Jerusalem they destroyed the temple. Jesus predicted that this would happen. Not one stone will be left on another, he said. And this happened to the letter. It happened exactly like that. Okay, and then what happens is we have a, and there's many passages, we won't look at them today, but that the Jewish people would be scattered to, to, throughout the whole world to, to all the nations, that they would be all over the place, which is what we see in history. And there are many other passages that back that up. Okay, so this took place and this was fulfilled. These things have already happened. But what we have here, and to satisfy this idea, and I told you it's coming, it's coming, this concept, okay, is really important to note because the things that happened in 70 AD accomplished some of the prophecy. The things that happened before 70 AD and up to 70 AD, it fulfilled some of the prophecy. But so much of what we're going to read in Revelation, what we read in, as we continue down in Daniel and Ezekiel and Zechariah, they haven't happened yet. 
These things could not have all been accomplished in 70 AD. They weren't all accomplished in 70 AD. So many of these cataclysmic judgments that we see in Revelation that that are articulated in the wars in Ezekiel and Zechariah, and we'll look at some of those going forward too, they haven't happened. They are major events, and God doesn't get things wrong. And so we're, we're anticipating this coming. This is still yet to come. But what we see here is we happen to live in an era where a very big prophecy was fulfilled. We live in an era of that. Now, it's a little before my time, but it's not before everybody's time here, and that's 1948. This is a significant, huge, pivotal, what we call a super sign, that things are, God does what he says he's going to do. And um, as I talk to Ruth and, and Karen, they say, hey, you know, you got to remind these people, you got to remind everybody that God's time clock is Israel. And they're right. And I said, you're right. It's coming next week. It's coming. It's coming. And here it is. The Jews and the nation of Israel as a whole being reestablished into the land that God gave them. The Abrahamic covenant has to be fulfilled. It's going to be fulfilled. The Davidic covenant has to be fulfilled. There will be someone who comes from the line of David that will have an everlasting kingdom. And it will be in the real nation of Israel. It's very national. It's not just a thought. We didn't replace Israel. We talked about that week two, I think. We haven't done that, but this is a major deal. Here are some of the passages that tell us about this. These are major prophecies that happen in between. So in our pause, Israel has to come back in their land. If Israel doesn't come back in their land, we've got a problem with a lot of these prophecies that are so national Israel. We've got a problem. This isn't to disregard our salvation. That's huge. But that's very Gentile at the moment in this partial hardening. And it isn't that Jews don't get saved. Now they do. They do. But we know as a whole and as a nation, that's going to happen to them uh, right before the return of Christ or as the return of Christ is taking place. Anyway, here's some incredible prophecies. Amazing stuff that happened in in our kind of sphere of history, if I can put it that way. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, old ancient names for places, from Hamath and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah. Israel and Judah, Judah both. This isn't just talking about the Babylonian uh, recovery, the Babylonian regathering. That was limited. That, that's not what this is. This is the nation of Israel later, and it's a second one. It's later on. Isaiah 66, 8. This is amazing. Who has heard such a thing? Who's seen such a thing? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in a moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. In a day, the nation of Israel will be reborn. I had the date up here for you. We know exactly when this took place. This happened May 14, 1948. And President Truman signed this document that put our, put our stamp of approval. This is a nation, and we back them as a nation. By the way, God bringing up and strengthening the United States of America at just the right time isn't because we're so brilliant. And I'm an American, and I'm a patriot. But remember that promise in Genesis 12, those who bless Israel who will be blessed and those who curse Israel will be cursed. Don't think that that doesn't still apply. And don't think that it doesn't still apply to the negative if we switch our allegiance, by the way. And that's going to happen, I, I, I fear. That's going to happen. I don't know if that's in our lifetime, but 
we can tell that, that we're not going to help Israel in the end. That's, that's how it will go down. But anyway, back to the text. Incredible. In a day, this is going to take place. In a day. Remember, the time clock for prophetic events is Israel. Israel's got to get back in their land. And this happened in 1948, Jeremiah 30. Back to the text. More examples. There's a lot more than these. I'm just giving you a few. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah. Israel and Judah. Not just Judah. Israel and Judah, says the Lord. I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. That happened. That wasn't ha- Israel was not a nation from 70 A.D. until 1948. These prophecies have to come true because our God's true. Our God's true. So these have to happen. Ezekiel 36, 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I'm not going to look at it, but I'll, I'll challenge you with a few passages from Ezekiel this week to study on your own. This is the famous passage that you may have heard about dry bones, the dry bones. That's not about you and me. There's songs that are sung about that, that but that's not about you and me. It's about the nation of Israel, specifically And I'm just going to show you one passage about this. Go to Ezekiel 37. We're not going to look at the whole thing. We just don't have time. You can see that that we're going to bounce around a little bit today. But if you go to Ezekiel chapter 37, by the way, 36, 37, 38, 39 is chronological. I don't think I'll get to it today, but there is a war coming that I believe will happen in the early part and then continue in through the tribulation called the War of Gog and Magog that is chapter 38 and 39, but it's, it's chronological. But if you look at 37, the Lord bringing them back, he's making reference to these dry bones kind of getting flesh again and coming up, but he defines it for us. You can read the whole chapter on your own, but if you look at this, Verse 11 of chapter 37, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves, raise you from the graves. O my people, I will bring you into the land of Israel. And it's the nation of Israel, into the land of Israel. You shall know that I am the Lord when I opened your graves and raised you from your graves, O my people. We'll put my spirit within you. This will happen in the millennial kingdom. This will happen when the nation of Israel puts their faith in Christ. But he's talking about the nation and Israel themselves. Now, this isn't to say that we are not part of the new covenant. It, it isn't to say that we are not part of the promise of the new covenant. But when it comes to the physical promises of the nation of Israel, that's not you and me, and we shouldn't even care. You know what the most important thing is? is your salvation, right? That piece of it. Pastor Kevin shared with me a book uh, from Paul Benoit, Benoit as uh, I was starting this study. And he, I can't read this whole section. It, it's a long section where he outlines several reasons why there's a difference. And it's, he says this about that idea. The church then is a partaker of the spiritual blessing of the new covenant. And this is that Jeremiah 31 covenant. Enjoying regeneration the forgiveness of sin, the presence and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's all you want, by the way. That, this, the land, the stuff, do you really care about that? God's about the eternal, not the temporal. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? These are the most important things that we share in that new covenant. Salvation, our biggest problem, which we're going to talk about a lot today. 
The church is primarily Gentile in its makeup, and we know that that's true. Those who have been graciously grafted in by God until their number is complete. Multitudes of Gentiles experience the wonderful blessing of the new covenant. Well, we all agree with that. But the church is not the nation of Israel. That's just not the case. The people with whom God made his covenant, the church does not and cannot fulfill that new covenant in that way. Its fulfillment awaits the arrival of Jesus, the King, the Messiah. He's a Jewish king and a Jewish Messiah. Now, we're grafted in, but that's what it's about. When he returns at the second coming, all the spiritual and material blessings promised to the nation of Israel will be received. Remember, when, when, uh, when his apostles, Jewish apostles, were so obsessed with the kingdom, it's because that's what they've been taught, because it's true. It's in the Old Testament, and there are promises to the nation of Israel. All right, so you kind of get that. So a summary of all this, Israel is God's prophetic time clock, no doubt about it. Without the existence of the nation of Israel, the day of the Lord, the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, all these terms, it can't begin. They have to be there because it's so, so Israel, the nation Israel focused. It is. It's what it's about. It's not about us. We're not even here. The church is taken away. It's not about us. And so we need to keep this. That super sign, all these other signs, all these other things, all these things we're going to study, they depend on this. They hinge on this. If there's no nation of Israel and eventually a rebuilt temple during the tribulation, then these things can't take place. Some of the passages we looked at and beyond are right here. This will be on the website if you're, if you're wanting some of that information for additional study, which is good. All right, so the rebirth of Israel restarts that clock. It, to a degree, restarts that clock. Now, it restarts it not the 70th week. We're not there yet, but it gets us watching, Okay. It gets us watching. What restarts the clock is the, the rest of Daniel 9. So it's kind of a false statement I hear, have here. It doesn't restart the 70th week clock, but it, it does restart our paying attention to this now. This is important. We're near the last time. However long that is, this is the important part. All right, back to Daniel 9. I know I'm jumping around here, but now back. We, you, you have to use Scripture to define Scripture, don't you? We've got to understand what's going on. So Daniel 9 doesn't give us everything. We needed to look at some of that other stuff. How does Israel get back there after they're dispersed? I just showed you that. All right, so back to the text. Daniel 9. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city. That happened. The sanctuary. That happened. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Okay, and some of that is going to be fulfilled in the tribulation. Some of the war, the desolation. He will make a firm covenant with the many... The many of Daniel's people that's referenced here at the beginning of Daniel chapter 9. Okay, that many for one week. Okay, that's what starts the clock again. So I said, oh, the nation of Israel, sort of. But what starts the clock of Daniel's 70th week is that. He's going to make a covenant, a peace treaty. He's going to make a covenant with the nation of Israel. And that is really important. The prince who is to come is a leader who will make a covenant with Daniel's people for that seven-year period of time. That's how we know the clock starts back up because he mentions week again for one week. And we, we know our math. We've had 69 up to this point. We're waiting for that 70th. That's where it comes to. Hopefully that kind of makes sense. We're back into this. It restarts the clock of weeks. So the nation of Israel kind of is our time clock. We know we're in that time period, but what starts the the clock for the 70th week is this peace treaty, which hasn't happened yet. We're still in the pause. 
We're still waiting for that moment to happen. The rapture could happen today, and that doesn't even start the clock. That takes us out of here. But what starts the clock for the 70th week is this peace treaty, this peace covenant. And by the way, Jesus references this to a degree, and so does Paul. So we'll see that going forward. All right, now, Daniel 9, 27b. In the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. That means there has to be a temple. That means that the Jews have to be doing this again, and they aren't currently doing this. Okay, there is no temple. If we were to have a field trip right now to go to Jerusalem and look at the Temple Mount, you'd see something up there, but it's a Muslim mosque. It's not a temple. And as a matter of fact, I I believe that this is true. A Jew or a Christian can't even bring a Bible up there, let alone start performing some sort of Jewish ritual. That's not allowed, and that would probably cause World War III. But it has to happen. So there's going to have to be some sort of a peace treaty between Israel and the rest of the world where they're allowed to do this. But he's going to stop it. He'll stop the sacrifices of grain offering. And the wing of abominations will come on he who makes desolate. We'll talk about that in a second. Jesus references it. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. This Antichrist. So this prince who is to come is the Antichrist. And he's going to violate this covenant. This is how we know it's seven years. This is how we know it's three and a half years in. We'll get more detail about that going forward in, in future weeks. So Jesus references this. Matthew 24, which we looked at a little bit last week. Remember what I told you. Matthew 24 needs to kind of be looked, looked at in conjunction with, and Luke 21, in conjunction with Revelation 6 through chapter 19. This is what Jesus is outlining for us. These are the signs that are, are taking place during the tribulation period, this period. And he references Daniel. So it tells us that he, he's telling us what you see in Daniel is what's going to be fulfilled. And he makes reference to this. He connects the prince that Daniel's referencing with the words abomination of, desol- of desolation and desolation. He calls it the abomination of desolation. Jesus talks about that in, Daniel, or that in Matthew chapter 24, 15 through 25. And he calls him a false messiah. As we saw, they were going to come right at the beginning. He, he comes back around to this as we get further in Matthew 24. He calls him a false messiah, that he'll stand in this rebuilt temple, which, again, doesn't exist yet. This is yet future. And he will declare himself God, speaking abominations. And he, he warns the reader, Jesus does in Matthew 24, that, that this Antichrist will have power and perform miracles, deceptive power. People will follow him because of the power that he has. And we have a very similar accounting of this from Paul. And I'd like you to turn there. We did look at Matthew 24 last week. We didn't look at that passage. But turn to 2 Thessalonians 2. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 2. By the way, I just love the fact, I hope you do too, that in order to really get a great understanding of this, we have to go Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. And what I love about that is that's the sort of students of the, the word we should be. You, you, you are not just New Testament people. Okay? You are the word of God people. The word of God as a whole. And we've talked about this before. You know, Famous pastors who say we need to unhitch from the Old Testament. You poor soul. You only know half of what's going on. How can you even stand up there and pre- you're, 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 you're like you know, two hands tied behind your back when you're trying to preach the word of God when you can't get the full picture 
we go back and forth because it's all his word. It's fluid. It's, it's, it's perfect. And he gives that to us intentionally. He goes back and forth intentionally. All right, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I need to turn there in order to read it to you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. As we look at this, this is Paul's understanding. Now, we've looked at this passage for other reasons in the, in the past. We've looked at this because, um, there we go, because we looked at the rapture scenario from here. where He's referencing these, these people in Thessalonica who thought they'd missed it. Right? They missed the rapture, and he's, re- he's encouraging them. But he gets into a discussion about the Antichrist. So as we look at the text, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he's referencing this prediction from Daniel as well. Look at this. He, they're, they're concerned about the Antichrist or the tribulation already starting. He says, so chapter 2, verse 1, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, the rapture, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by spirit or spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. That hasn't happened. Tribulation hasn't started. The day of the Lord hasn't come. And he tells us what starts it. Look at this. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. That's the start. And he doesn't talk about the peace treaty here, but he's referencing us back. Okay, who's this man of lawlessness? Same guy that Daniel's talking about, Jesus is talking, abomination of desolation. The same guy that John references as the Antichrist. Man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, he calls him, another name, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, we didn't look at it, but that's what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 15 through 25. Same guy, okay? This is the same one. So as we look at this, He's referencing Daniel's prediction. He calls him the lawless one or the son of destruction. He'll declare himself God. And just as Jesus does, Paul indicates that this Antichrist will have supernatural power. Let's look at the text. Okay? He'll proclaim himself to be God. And he says, do you remember that when I was still with you, this is verse 5 of 2 Thessalonians 2, I told you these things. And you know what is restraining him now. So that's the, we, we determined, we believe I think the interpretation of that's the Holy Spirit working through the church so that he may be revealed in his time. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains him, I think, the Holy Spirit working through the church, will do so until he's out of the way, the rapture. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Important to know, Jesus has got this. You don't sweat this guy. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power, false signs, and wonders with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so they may believe what is false. His impressive power is so impressive, people will believe him to be the Messiah, that he'll be the Messiah. We see this, and now the Lord's going to make those who rejected the, the gospel when they heard it clearly. Uh, this came up a couple weeks ago. Somebody asked me this about this concept uh, does that mean that everybody who's heard the gospel now, they've heard the gospel currently, and they've processed the gospel, will they have no chance to be saved during the tribulation? I'm not going to make that bold statement. There will be some who have no chance to get saved because it says so. God will make them believe what is false, much like he did with Pharaoh. Who is that? I don't know, but here's what I do know. Today is the day of salvation, right, right now. You hear the gospel, you hear it proclaimed, You don't want to be in a situation where God says, I'm going to make an example out of you because you didn't love the truth and so be saved. 
I'm going to make you believe the lie. It's going to be such an impressive thing that the Antichrist brings to the world. His might, his wonder, his, his probably his, his, his charisma, the way he looks. It's what false Christs do. It's what false teachers do. It's what false prophets do. It's what Satan has been doing. Today's your day of salvation. You don't want to put yourself in this situation. Anyway, this is the Antichrist character. This is what we see. So we see Daniel speaking of it. Before we ever get to John in Revelation 6, we see Jesus speaking of it. We see Paul speaking of it. All written before John gets his. And now we can transition, finally, back into Revelation 6. We're getting set up. Okay, so go to Revelation chapter 6. And let's take a look again at this at this, um, this Antichrist. By the way, as you turn there, I didn't put this up, we discussed it. Paul indicates that this Wallace one can take power until the restraining force is out of the way. I mentioned that. I, I believe we, the church, uh, the Holy Spirit, the church working through us is probably what that is. But anyway, Jesus beats him in the end. All right, back to the text. The first four horsemen. Cool little, you know, picture up there. That's not in your Bible. Just something I found on the internet, kind of an interesting little picture. I believe that these are not horsemen that we'll actually physically see. This is symbolism of what they represent. And, and I think we can see that just in the language of how it's written and the way we know how things work based on what we've already studied in Daniel, Matthew 24, and 2 Thessalonians 2. This is a real man. This is an individual who is going to come on to the, 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 uh, the scene, and I think the horses that are here, which are representing the first four seals, are symbolic of the judgment that is coming. Okay, And I'll just kind of say that as we, as we look at it. But the first four horsemen, here's the first one. I, I'm trying to make these color-coordinated, so each of these seals, on that screen you can't even see it says first seal white horse. I put a little green behind it. But it's the white horse. A world leader emerges. What does it say? Chapter 6, verse 1 again. And I'll put it up on the screen. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. It's all we're given about the first seal. That's it. Okay, so some details about this. White horse, rider had a bow, a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. There are those who will interpret this as being Jesus. Why? Well, in Revelation 19, turn there very quickly, what do we see about Jesus? I'm going to tell you right off the bat, I'm not trying to trick you, it's not. How do we know that? Well, everything we've already studied from Daniel to Jesus to Paul, the first thing we see is not Jesus. It's the Antichrist in the, in the Revelation scene that we are seeing here in the tribulation period. But if you look at, at uh, Revelation 19 and the return of Christ, what do you see at verse 11? Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. Oh, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, his, and on his head are many diadems. So crown, very similar. And on his uh, many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following after him in white horses. 
From his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. A lot more given to us about this is definitely Jesus. He will tread the wine prices of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's our Savior. That's our King. No doubt about it. This is not in Revelation 6. Notice how short it is. And notice some of the the basics of it. Yep, he's coming in a white horse. Yep, he has a little power and he's conquering. But he's got a bow, not a sword. And he doesn't even have any arrows. Okay? He's a little bit more inept. So if we looked at this, he's a deceiver. What does the Antichrist do? Just think about the term. What does a false teacher do? What does a false prophet do? What does Satan do? He masquerades, right? He masquerades like something special. He masquerades like he's the truth. A false teacher will pretend to be. We just heard this yesterday. We talked about this yesterday. How do you know a false teacher? It's by their fruits, right? Over time, we looked at this. We we can look at and see. But initially, somebody that could come into even our church that could look like they got it all together. But how do you know? Well, are they teaching the word of God? Is Is that what's true? Is that the false teacher? Is that, well, this is kind of ultimately what we see. So this Antichrist will appear on the world scene masquerading as the Messiah. He's, he's riding a white horse, but I don't think it's literal. I don't think we're going to see him on a horse like we will Christ. He's given, and I, wanna, I put in here, by God. God is in control of all of this, a crown to become a leader in the world. Notice in 2 Thessalonians 2 that we just read, God makes people believe what is false. He's in charge of all of this, empowered by Satan, but who's in charge of Satan. God is, so keep that in mind. This is all about God's glory, about his will being fulfilled. So he's given this crown. He's given the ability to conquer, to gain power is what that means, but peacefully. A bow with no arrows. He's not, he's not in war yet, not initially. So what we see is a false peace. He comes peacefully. And doesn't that kind of coincide with what we saw in Daniel, a peace covenant? Peacefully. For a little while, there's peace. People think, oh, this is good. This guy's going gonna to solve all the Middle East problems, finally. It wasn't Jimmy Carter. It wasn't Ronald Reagan. It wasn't any of the rest. It was this guy. He's the one. And they're going to believe that they're safe and that this is their Messiah. They're going to believe that. And when we look at this, Warren Wearsby gives us some good understanding about this. We would expect the Antichrist to resemble the Christ, to resemble him, because the Antichrist is Satan's great imitation. Even the Jews, who ought to know the scriptures, will be deceived by him. And he gives some scriptures for that, some of which we have read. This great deceiver will come as a peaceful leader, holding a bow but no arrows. Our Lord's weapon is a sword, which we already read. The Antichrist will solve the world's problems and be received as a great liberator. That's what people will think. That's what they will believe. And as I mentioned before, no surprise to us. What do we know about Satan? What do we know about false apostles, false teachers? Paul tells us, for such men are false, false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, false teachers that come into a church. No wonder even Satan disguises himself as what is an angel of light. It's not a surprise that this would happen. But what he offers is temporary peace. He offers temporal peace that is about symptoms, that is about the things that we see that the humans are obsessed with, the temporal and not the eternal. That's what we see. Our bigger problem 
is peace that we don't have as sinners with the Almighty. That's the bigger problem. Let me articulate that with a very important passage about this. Long passage, can't, can't break the whole thing down for you, but we've talked about this one many times. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. This got referenced yesterday in the men's breakfast. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. What happens here? What happens? How do we become this new creation, get this new heart, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation? That is, in Christ God, God was reconciling the world to himself because we're his enemy. That's what reconciling is about, is to have peace, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We now have this message. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. God's making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. This is all about enemy and not enemy. That's what reconciliation is. For our sake he had made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, of course, imparting his righteousness on us. Paul says it again in Romans 5. Therefore, since, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This is the biggest thing. This is what we need. The Antichrist cannot provide this, cannot do this, can't even touch this. One more, continuing on and just a little further in Romans 5. Since, therefore, we have, it's on the screen, we've been justified by his blood, much more we shall be saved from him, from the wrath of God. That's back to the, the whole idea of what we're talking about here. What does Jesus provide? A way to get out of the wrath. What does the Antichrist provide? He's giving you a path into the wrath. It's a very different thing. He's giving you what you want in the temporal. They're going to love the peace that they have for a moment, but that's not the problem we got. Our problem is sin. For if while we're enemies, right back to it, we're reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now been received reconciliation. Notice the reaction to the believer who's been reconciled and is no longer an enemy, that God has already dealt with our biggest problem, our biggest enemy peace issue, it's rejoicing. Did you catch that at the end of these passages? I'll go back. Romans 9, 11. We rejoice that this happened. We rejoice. What is this? We rejoice in the hope. We rejoice in it. Back to this one. He's, we, this idea that we become ambassadors, we, we get to tell other people about this. This is incredible. This whole, this whole passage here is to get you excited about going and doing your job because he's made peace with you. And only he could do that. Here's a great quote that I think sums all this up about this passage. And I love this because this really helps us. The Antichrist will offer peace but tempor by temporarily satisfying the symptoms of man's problems. That's good. Okay? Without dealing with the root cause. What's the root cause? You're not going to get this from Satan. You're not going to get this from the Antichrist. You're not going to get it from a glib world leader. The real problem is our nature that's at war with God. We are born into the world an enemy of God, Romans 5, which we read. I need to be forgiven of my sin. I need a new nature inside of me that comes from the power of the Holy Spirit to regenerate me. Men, yesterday, talked about it. If someone is coming along talking about social, economic, political, relational type problems without dealing with the sin problem, that's a false gospel. That's a false gospel. All that Christian stuff, 
about righteousness, morality, the transferred righteousness of Christ, which we just read, right? The new birth, don't worry about that. I'll give you the package without that. That's the teaching of the Antichrist. He's going to come in here and he's going to give you answers, going to give the world answers to everything that's going on. And for a moment, and it's just for a moment, because seven years isn't very long, and halfway through he turns pretty vicious, as we've seen. He is going to tell the world what they want to hear and what our selfish, twisted, sinful nature wants to hear is things that satisfy us in our sin nature. And he's going to give it to them. I don't know how that's going to look exactly. I, I don't know. I don't have to worry about it because I'm, I'm going to be with my Savior, and I pray that you are too when this takes place. But the world's going to be deceived by his incredible charisma, his incredible power, the fact that he is masquerading like an angel of light, just like Satan. And he's going to offer people what they want, but not what they need. Not what they need. And what happens in, we don't have time today, but what happens in seal number two, and we'll look at two through five next week, is war, it doesn't last because war comes. And it's some bad, bad stuff. And that is all part of the wrath of God because they rejected the real peace. And that's through Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you for the truth of all of this. We thank you for the fact that we can be reconciled to you doesn't come from us, doesn't come from our righteous deeds. It comes from the finished work on the cross of your son. It comes from the gospel that's found in your perfect word. We thank you that you've given us all this ahead of time, that you've given us an opportunity to be saved. I pray that everybody in here loves the truth and to so be saved, that they love it, they embrace it, that as you stir in their hearts, you draw them to yourself, that they repent and they believe that today's the day, today's the day of salvation. This is the peace we all need. It's the peace that we should desire. I pray that we as believers don't live lives that are looking for temporary fixes, that we look to your word, that we look to you for what we really need. A relationship with you is as satisfying and as full of joy as that we can find on this side of eternity. And I pray that we live that out today, life more abundant today, that we live lives of joy, contentment, not complaining, but thankful even in, the, in the, the face of hardships, be an example to the people around us so we can show them the way, so we can show them the way of reconciliation. Be the ambassador you called us to be in Second Corinthians. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.